Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Our listeners have questions and comments. Occasionally we have the opportunity to respond to those questions and comments via email, talkback at issuesetc.org, or the Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. Some questions today on mortal and venial sins connected to our recent show on Romans one thirty-two, whether or not it calls for the killing of homosexuals, and then a little reaction to Dr. John Bombaro's conversation where he was quoting a nominally Christian philosopher. All right, let's begin with Joe. He said, I have a lot of disagreements with Mike Bindorf's mild opposition to the death penalty for homosexuals. But instead of listing them, I pose this question. Can issues, etc., examine whether some sins are worse than others and what those sins are? I think this is the foundational question. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the email, Joe. Well, I think we have. We did an interview some time back with Pastor Will Whedon in the course of some other series where we ended up talking about two categories that theologians use to describe really the state of faith with respect to individual sins, and that's the category of mortal sin and venial sin. It's a long-established category. It's one that, while we can define a mortal sin as one that robs someone of faith— and a venial sin as a sin that does not rob one of faith, we have to maintain that all sins deserve eternal death and punishment were they not atoned for by the blood of Christ. But we're really talking here in these cases of sins, not the sins themselves, like what you did, but the nature of faith with respect to that sin. Does a sin, does a sin rob one of saving faith, or can one remain ever repentant. Now, the way the old theologians, especially the Lutherans, have said, they've said, well, you know, venial sins are the ones that are unintentional. Not accidental, but unintentional. They, they are sins of weakness, whereas mortal sins are ones that are done with the full knowledge that this sin is a sin. Well, if you stop and think about the sins you commit on a daily basis, Christians' conscience are always testifying against them. And there are times when our conscience says, no, 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 don't do that, don't say that, don't think that, and you just go ahead and do it. Don't you? Am I unique in that respect? Where I know that something I'm about to say is wrong and I say it anyway? Now, these categories really serve more as a constant warning to the Christian that they should avoid sin and struggle against sin at all costs. But we do have to recognize that there are sins that Christians commit. Let's think about this. The sins that Christians commit without even being aware that they're committing a sin. We can safely say those are the kind of sins that the Christian being unaware of them does not rob them of faith necessarily. But these categories are intended to serve as a stern warning against simply taking sin lightly. Now, that's the category of mortal and venial. Long established, it's found in the Lutheran confessions, it's found in the Lutheran dogmaticians, 
There's very little question about that. There are categories that we wholeheartedly accept. Then there is the question of whether certain sins have greater consequences, both to the neighbor or in one's own life. And one of those consequences might be to rob someone of saving faith. But temporal consequences. So, someone thinks a bad thought in the privacy of their mind about their neighbor. That certainly is a sin. It's condemned by God's law. Does it have the same temporal, it may have grave consequences in the life of that Christian. If that becomes a harbored anger, resentment, a grudge, it can rob one of faith. But the temporal consequences of the private thought, an evil private thought against your neighbor, not that big. Your neighbor may not even know you're thinking that. They may not even be personally harmed by it. Although, in God's eyes, it is the same as if you were to have murdered your neighbor. The temporal consequences are insignificant. If it's simply a private thought. No less a sin, no less dangerous to the faith of the Christian committing that sin. But in terms of temporal consequences, not so much. And I think that's one of the things that we confuse when we talk about sins that have consequences and sins that seem to have no consequence. For a man to go out and physically murder someone has tremendous consequences in both his life and the life of the person he has harmed and their family and everyone else. It does more harm and that chain of harm is longer and greater and more powerful than if a man just says, I just hate that guy. In God's eyes, same thing. In terms of temporal consequences, a vast difference. One of those things we punish civilly when someone commits actual murder because of that chain of harm that is done to everyone involved, including the greater society. The other one, we don't punish civilly. I can stand on the street corner and say, I hate that guy all day long. Guess what? I'm not going to get arrested. That guy may never know. And this is the question we were trying to answer when it came to the civil punishment of homosexuals. Does Scripture require a civil punishment for homosexuality? I think in, in a sane world, we would say that there, apart from Scripture, even just dealing with natural law, there should be some kind of consequence there. That's really actually how Western civilization understood this for centuries, for millennia. But it's a question of prudence, of judgment, of reasonability. Does it rise to the level of, that's why they will talk about victimless crimes, in order to remove the legal stigma from homosexuality, the legal arguments were there are no victims. So we should not be punishing them. They were making the argument from the chain of harm is really insignificant or they're only hurting themselves. As long as this is consensual, they're only hurting themselves. Why should it be a crime? Those are the actual arguments that were made in my home state of Texas when they overturned sodomy laws. From God's perspective, are such sins deserving death? Yes. Are those sins true mortal sins? Absolutely. In the same way that intentionally committing adultery is a true mortal sin. One cannot say, well, I'm just going to commit adultery, but I'm still a Christian. 
I'm retaining faith. No. And in the same way, turning from homosexual to heterosexual sins, it used to be a crime to commit adultery too. And we dropped that one long before we dropped the sodomy laws. Why was it considered a crime? Why was it punishable in Western civilization? Because it harmed everyone involved. There were consequences that went far beyond the individual acts or the consenting adults. So I don't think Dr. Middendorf took a, um, what, a soft opposition to the killing of homosexuals. He was simply answering the question, does Romans 132 single out homosexuality before God as deserving death? And the answer to that question is no. If you listen to his argument, it's very clear that all those sins listed, including homosexual acts, before God, are deserving of death. That does not make the case that in terms of how we civilly punish people, we should be meeting out the death penalty. I would encourage our listener to listen to the introduction of our series with Pastor Will Whedon on the seven deadly sins. You guys covered this whole issue in part one of that series. And I'm not saying that the mortal and venial sin is a cut and dried category, like these sins fall into mortal category and these sins fall into venial, because the categories exist, as I said before, to speak to the state of faith of the person committing that sin, rather than to say certain sins fit into the mortal, certain sins fit into the venial. Don't the Lutheran confessions state that David lost his faith? Absolutely. When it, he had an affair with Bathsheba? Yes, he lost his faith and killed. drove away the Holy Spirit. And he fell from faith and had to be restored by the prophet Nathan. And in that case, they say, look, here's a really clear example of what David couldn't have been doing all this stuff and still retain the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the stated conclusion of the Lutheran confessions. Here's some more feedback on your interview with Dr. Middendorf. Does God command the killing of homosexuals in Romans chapter 1? With regard to this segment with Dr. Middendorf, does the word abomination have any meaning in the Bible when it applies that word to some things and not others? Why was the word not mentioned in the segment? Did Middendorf cover this in his commentary? Furthermore, does the state have any legitimate interest in considering the execution of rapists, pedophiles, and men who murder children, as well as men who mutilate the genitals of children? What is the point of a state sword if it is forbidden from executing those citizens who practice the most heinous destruction, or is sodomy a victimless crime? Finally, if a state is not required by God to execute sodomites, is it allowed to? On what basis? The basis that sodomy is just a speck in our neighbor's eye while pirating a Disney movie is a plank in ours. Would you feel better if Hollywood pirates were executed too? Or if that's too silly, just substitute shoplifting instead. I hope you at least agree that it is normal and wholesome for the state to execute murderers, even though that's just a speck in those people's eyes. Well, again, the, <laughs> the state has decided in terms of capital punishment, that there are crimes that rise sufficiently to a level of harm or danger in the case of, say, trees and danger to the nation, the entire nation, that these things should be capital crimes. And really, it's a legal question rather than a theological question as to whether or not why we didn't use the word abomination. Did we read through the entire thing? I think at one point, Dr. Mindorf read through the entire first chapter of Romans and on into the second. I don't require it. I usually tell you to make sure we read the I entire was, text for our listeners because they're listening and don't have their Bibles with them. And I think he did. And I, I, why I don't recall him 
commenting on abomination. I think we could call any sin an abomination before the Lord. (laughs) How do we get off saying that my sins, I'm not tempted toward homosexuality, but I am tempted toward heterosexual lust. Is it less an abomination? Of course not. And then just to comment on the thrice mentioned speck in the neighbor's eye, uh, not too clever reference to the one of the essays in the recent large catechism from Concordia Publishing House. It's an uncharitable reading of that particular essay to say that the essayist was simply referring to the crimes, the sins of homosexuality and other sins as mere specks of sins. They were talking about referencing Jesus' own words. You got to do something with Jesus' words. You can't throw them out. The attempt to say that we can't call our neighbor's sins specks flies in the face of Jesus' own words. All sins are planks as far as God is concerned. All of them. But Jesus speaks those words and you cannot throw them out. They mean something. And he simply says you cannot attend to what appears to be a speck in your neighbor's eye while you still have the plank in your own, remove the plank so that then you can deal with the speck in your neighbor's eye. It's not about the relative size of sins. I really hope that there are Bible commentaries to deal with this. It's not about the relative size of sins. It's about whose sin gets dealt with first. If you can't read Jesus' words and draw that conclusion, then I don't know what to tell you. We'll be right back. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org slash deaconess. Working in faith, laboring in love remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Are you attending the LCMS National Convention? Ad Crucem is partnering with Confessional Lutheran Fellowship of Facebook to help members of CLF identify each other at the convention. If you're a member of CLF, pop on over to our booth to get your free CLF sticker and to see all our wonderful Christ-focused products. Visit adcrucem.com or booth 222 at the LCMS convention. Public schools are increasingly chaotic and undermine Christian children's faith. We need to rebuild our Lutheran schools to provide a truly Christian alternative. Redeemer Classical School is rebuilding this Christ-focused education in Fort Wayne, Indiana, teaching students to wonder at God's creation and to love their neighbors. We need you to help us give children this faithful Christian education. 
Donations to Redeemer Classical School go directly to providing scholarships. Visit fortwayneclassical.com slash give. Luther had Wartburg. We have Collinsville. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do. Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Bolkin. We're going through listener email, the Issues Etc. listener comment line. How can you become united to Jesus and therefore be in Christ? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who comes in Jesus' name. The Spirit takes Jesus' victory of the cross, an empty tomb, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal, and declares it to you. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God into your heart. The Holy Spirit alone enables you to confess that Jesus is Lord Today, as he has throughout the centuries, the Holy Spirit uses the means of grace to join you and keep you in Christ. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Life in Christ. Leanne writes, regarding John Bombaro on the Christian and Jesus' resurrection interview, with all due respect, is Pastor Bombaro mixing teaching of the resurrection with the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein? I looked up Wittgenstein. He isn't a called and ordained minister, nor is he Lutheran. Per internet philosopher, he was baptized Roman Catholic, although not a practicing Roman Catholic. Speculation Wittgenstein was homosexual, his sexuality was unambiguous, which may be true or untrue. And while I understand that there are people who struggle with homosexuality or even substance abuse problems, among other things, I am not interested in their philosophy or their opinion on the Christian faith, if they're letting sin run their life, or not even Christian. I'm leery of Christianity blended with humanism and thought that although Luther was interested in the teaching of Erasmus, eventually Luther rejected it. I'm not particularly interested in the philosophy or teachings of Aristotle, Plato, although I hear many Roman Catholics say they admire the philosophy or teachings of Aristotle. Luther held that Christians, young and old, need to judge what is being taught slash preached by a minister, have heard you and your guests often examining theology, doctrine of others based on whether they are holding to God's word. No offense, I was interested in and liked your interview with Pastor Bombaro, but when he got to Wittgenstein, Never having heard of him, I looked him up, and it bothers me. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks for listening, Leslie. I think Dr. John Warren Montgomery did one of his doctoral theses on Ludwig Wittgenstein because when I taught at his Apologetics Academy many summers ago, 
One of the constant stops on the tour, if I'm not mistaken, was the home of Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I'm pretty sure that was the case. I may be wrong there. Haven't been there in many years. The reason that Dr. Bambaro included that was it was a separate article that he had written in this multi-part article about the resurrected life. And he was simply using Wittgenstein as an example of someone, perhaps a nominal Christian philosopher, who became convinced of the truth of the resurrection. It's it's an apologetic point. He became convinced of the truth of the resurrection because he realized, even nominal Christian that he was, that if Christ is not raised, he cannot help us. He's dead. He's decaying. He's no savior. He cannot help us, and he's not worth listening to. A very powerful apologetic point, which was the only point that Dr. Bambaro was drawing out of Wittgenstein. He was not delving into his philosophy at all. I have no idea what Wittgenstein believed as a philosopher, but the apologetic point that he was making was he quoted a long statement from Wittgenstein saying this really is kind of a nail in the coffin apologetically for those who say, well, you know, Jesus is a good teacher, but of course he didn't rise from the dead. If, if, he, if he didn't rise from the dead, he's a fraud. He's not a good teacher. That was basically the point there. He was not trying to mix teaching about the resurrection with any kind of humanist philosophy. He was simply using Wittgenstein as an example of a nominal Christian who became convinced of the truth of the resurrection because he understood that really all of, as St. Paul says, all of the Christian faith hangs on the fact that it occurred. Here's a great question from Adam. Been a listener to the podcast for about six years now, and I can't thank you enough for the content you put out. It's truly a blessing. My question is on article, let's see if I got my Roman numerals right here. Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession, XIV, is that 14? That's right. Of the Augsburg Confession. I recently learned that some people understand this article to mean that lay people, obviously including elders, should not assist the pastor with the distribution of the sacrament. Do you know if this was the historical interpretation of this article? If it is, when and why do lay people start assisting with distribution of the sacrament? The way I read Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession, as long as lay people are subservient to the pastor and don't commune those the pastor doesn't, I don't see a problem. Thanks for the great question. Thanks for listening, Adam. So we're really talking here about ecclesiastical, that's how they would have thought of it, ecclesiastical authority or ecclesiastical order. So it's very brief. It simply reads, of ecclesiastical order, they teach, that is, the confessors teach, that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments unless he is regularly called. Very simple, very quite to the point. There's some debate over what it means to be regularly called, but usually those debates are propagated by people who don't want to abide by Article 14. Well, what does it mean to be regularly called? It could mean anything. Well, it doesn't. In its historical context, it means called and installed as a public preacher of the word. It means called and ordained, which is what the reformers would have understood. You must be called to do these things by the church, by the duly appointed authority of the church, whatever that may be, and that's changed in the course of Lutheranism over centuries from time to time. But what's in view here is the public teaching in the church and the administration of the sacraments. And yes, your suspicions are correct. Until quite recently, I would say, and I could be proven wrong here, until quite recently, perhaps the 20th century, that's where I could be proven wrong, in Lutheranism, the administration of the sacraments was given only to 
the called and ordained servants of the word, pastors. Now, there were a class of assistants to the pastors who would assist in communion distribution who were not strictly pastors, but they were set aside. We would call them deacons. They were set aside for that purpose in order to maintain good order to assist with the distribution of the sacrament. How and when lay people began to become involved in the distribution of the sacrament, I don't know the answer to that question. I do know the the history of how Lutherans did it. They were very, very, very strict about it. They just said, look, these things are given to the stewards of the mysteries. They're not given to lay people to do. This pastor is called by the church in order to do these very things. They would cite Acts, the second chapter and following where the apostle said, we've got business to take care of it here in the church. We need to devote ourselves to the word of God and prayer. There's the distinction right there. Now, whether or not we're justified in allowing lay people to assist with the sacrament is an entirely different question. This is Paul in Milwaukee projecting myself into Pastor Connor's class of program 2014. Our heaven and the life in the world to come, synonyms. My Lutheran education overall has much emphasized the former term over the latter. Thanks for listening. That's a good question. Our heaven and the life of the world to come, that's the language of the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Notice the order there. Because someone can die, their soul depart to be with Christ in heaven, but they still await the resurrection. And the creed joins the resurrection with the life of the world to come in that order. Otherwise, if they were thinking, well, the the soul dies, they depart to be with Christ, and that's the life of the world to come, that heavenly existence, and then comes the resurrection, I think the order would have been reversed. So what's in view in the, in the creed's language there, I believe, is the new heaven and the new earth, the world to come. That is not the planet to come, but the new creation that is awaiting Christ's return and the resurrection of all flesh. So they're not synonymous. Are they in some way against one another? No. We're just talking about what we can say scripturally about a person who dies before the resurrection, which is remarkably little, except that they are in the presence of Christ, according to their soul, and their bodies remain here, awaiting the resurrection. And what we can say about the life of the world to come after the resurrection, which is quite a bit, a new heaven and a new earth, all things are remade, and everything that we can say about life eternal. But we keep these things together, and we don't allow one to substitute for the other, especially we don't allow that intermediate state between death and the resurrection of all flesh to substitute for the fullness that comes at the resurrection of Christ's return. Bill writes, the Long Gospel series is fantastic. I didn't know much about the Birdman, Walther, but I do now. Pastor Whedon, what can I say? If he's on, I'm listening. I listen to the Long Gospel series over and over. Keep it coming. Thanks, concludes Bill. I think the reference to the Birdman with... Uh C.F.W. Walther, the, one of the founders of the Lutheran Church of Missouri, said, and the author of The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel, is that Walther was such a heavy smoker. He smoked a pipe, and he smoked it apparently 
to such a degree that he killed regularly the birds that he would keep in a cage in his office. The birds couldn't take it. They would die. At least the myth is that he smoked so much that they were, on a regular basis, replacing these birds that died because Walther would just fill the place with smoke. One final email. Jason, where else but issues, etc., can I hear an academic discussion of moralistic therapeutic deism, mindless banter, and commercials for snow cones? Thanks for listening. Jason. Well, that's true. I'm not a big fan of the mindless banter, to tell you the truth, but the mindless banter is a lot harder work for me. Asking questions is a lot easier. Speaking of that, when we come back... We'll be teaching a Sunday school lesson with Pastor Tom Baker on the 12 spies in numbers 13 and 14. Because the DJ is asleep on the radio, on the radio, on the radio, uh oh, on the radio, uh oh, on the radio, uh oh, on the radio. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, We continue our adventures in Acts with repentance that leads to life. First called Christians, martyrdom of James, Peter rescued, and when you pray but don't expect an answer. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Find out how your life story is interwoven with the life of Christ in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about Life in Christ at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com.